medical department only to go to the bench and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. I'm Elja Zais, a member of the FMPA education team and your host for today's episode. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Charlie Pedlar. Charlie is a Professor of Applied Sports and Exercise Science at St Mary's University, an Honorary Associate Professor at the Institute of Sport, Exercise and Health at UCL, and Chief Science and Research Officer at Orico. He has previously had roles at the British Olympic Association and English Institute of Sport. He currently works with professional athletes from a variety of sports, including basketball, ice hockey and football. Thank you for joining us today, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on board. In this episode, we're going to discuss intravenous nutrition use by professional athletes and the risks. So, start us off. Tell us a little bit about your career to date, including what led to your interest in IV nutrition use in professional athletes. So, um... My background is in exercise physiology. I studied sports science as a, as a student and then went on to do a PhD. Um, originally, uh, I studied very much endurance athletes and um, was particularly interested in altitude training, um, sleep quality, um, and kind of various aspects around that. And one of those was um, iron deficiency. Mm-hmm. So from quite early on, I was looking at... Um, blood test data in athletes and um, and a, a range of different uh, biomarkers really relating to performance specifically kind of how you um, would uh, observe changes in um, hemoglobin so really around oxygen transport for endurance athletes mm-hmm. um, and underpinning that with the you know the iron deficiency is a really important element um, particularly for, for female athletes and and so from there it's kind of grown and grown and I now kind of um, see a lot of blood test data in athletes um, either on a sort of consultancy basis or in various kind of research projects that we've done Mm -hmm. over the years. So um, right now my role with um, Orico in particular is to track um, biomarker data in professional athletes. So that includes Premier League football players, NBA players in the US, NFL players, so we get a lot of data to, to look at, and that's kind of um, the sort of most relevant part of my career, I suppose, in terms of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to expand further on that? or? Uh, well, yeah, so just in terms of what led up to, so, uh, okay. you know, a lot of this going. was inspired by the um, BDSM editorial that was recently published. Yes. So just wondering what led up to that publication. Yeah, so we... Um, uh, Observe. I mean, it's interesting how the landscape's changed over the years because athletes, historically, we were looking for, for deficiencies. Mm-hmm. We were looking for um, vitamin D deficiency, iron deficiency, magnesium deficiency, and trying to help support athletes to get the right nutrients. Mm-hmm. But over time, we've seen a kind of a change in the way sports nutrition has been applied. We've seen uh, a lot more products surrounding athletes. And if you go into the training room in some of these pro teams, you know, there's fridges full of 
quite potent um, nutrition products, drinks, bars, you know, the, all these kinds of things. So, um, so the work we've done has changed a little bit from identifying deficiencies to actually looking at um, these kind of super highs or super physiological levels of some nutrients and trying mm. to actually work out what athletes need to stop taking mm. um, rather than what they need to start taking. So it's kind of um, it's flipped on its head a little bit. Um, but one of the things that really has stood out in recent years has been uh, that we've seen very high levels of vitamin B in particular. So B6, B12, um, and we're talking like above the measurement scale for the lab in many cases. Mm -hmm. And um, some of that might be from these nutrition products that we're talking about that they're consuming in the normal way through the, you know, consuming them at the mouth. Um, but talking to the athletes, talking to the trainers, it it's become apparent that there's, there's um, athletes are using intravenous nutrition mm. um, which they're getting from um, their own private setup so it's not the teams the teams aren't administering administering these products athletes are going away themselves and um, finding their own maybe they're being directly kind of marketed these um, these uh, products and services um, or they're going and seeking them out themselves um, and so it's it's concerning and that's really what motivated this article was mm. It's concerning because you say you've got a very, very high B12 value already and then next week you're putting more um, you know, nutrients directly into the bloodstream. Um, so it's concerning because um, you end up with these really toxic levels and we don't really know what the long-term effect of, of, those, uh, of those levels are going to be. So mm. um, I think we were sort of motivated to look into this area and, and put some guidelines together really. So this editorial that we're talking about and, uh, and is is um, available via British Journal of Sports Medicine just talks about what the evidence is for um, for, for this sort of it directly uh, taking intravenous nutrition as opposed to um, oral uh, ingestion of, of products mm -hmm. and then what some of the potential risks of doing that are. So um, it's really aimed at kind of at raising awareness and um, giving doctors, nutritionists, sports scientists something to fall back on if they're talking to an athlete and it comes up that they are um, using this kind of intravenous nutrition. Yeah. Okay, and what are the direct risks to health for athletes receiving nutrition intravenously? I think um, long-term, it, what it does is it takes away from healthy nutrition habits using food. So if you think about your... You know, when you put food in your mouth, you chew it up, you swallow it, it's still external to the body. It's not actually in the body. So um, we have a really intricate digestive system which processes that food and decides what it needs to... We decide like physiologically, without even having to think about it, we, just, we know what we need to absorb from that food. Like It's an incredible system if you think about it. Mm. And it, if, we've got, if we've got a a very high level of a particular nutrient the systems that we have will actually stop us from absorbing more of that nutrient mm. and that's protective so iron is the one that i'm really familiar with and we know that you can only absorb so much iron every day um, and um, any extra iron that's absorbed um, is you know needs to be 
got rid of in some way and we don't really have a good mechanism for, for getting rid of that iron so um, so uh, we have a, a system like there's a hormone called hepcidin which increases and prevents us from um, absorbing too much iron that's one example um, we've also got um, a really kind of intricate um, gut mucosa which protects us from um, absorbing too much other metals, other you know tox to uh, toxic um, nutrients that might be that might find their way into our into our gut, uh, and choose the sorts of things that we need to absorb. Mm. Um, we also have a something called the, the microbiome in the gut, which is really dynamic and changes according to uh, what we're feeding uh, ourselves, and so it, it's. Um, it's really set up to, to give you what you need, providing you're having a, a healthy a healthy diet. Now, if we put a needle into a vein and and um, give people an infusion of a um, of the, some of these nutritional products, we're completely bypassing that system. So the the motivation for people is that they think they're able to absorb the nutrients more directly. They're able to kind of shortcut this system, mm. but actually um, they're also <laughs> missing all of that protection that they get so long term it could be that they have the well, there's unknown consequences that we don't know about but they may well be sort of poisoning themselves effectively from um from these uh, nutritional um iv nutrition products yeah and I, I suppose also there's the sort of inherent risks with the, the procedure itself of um giving anything intravenously such as infection mm -hmm. um yeah. and things like this now, are you able to give us an idea of how prevalent IV nutrition use is in professional footballers? I think it's, I mean, the short answer is no. Mm. Um, it's impossible to tell. So, you know, we've, we, we don't work, we, we don't have blood test data on, uh, on all of, you know, uh, footballers uh, or a big enough sample of footballers to be able to tell you mm. what the prevalence is. And, and also we can't demonstrate the, the sort of cause and effect here. So it could be, like I say, that, that we've got um, some of this nutrition coming via food as well, via these um, high, highly nutritious products. Um, but I think, you know, you're, it's remarkable how accessible uh, the, uh, these IV drip bars are. And so I could go to a shopping centre in West London today mm. and pay a few, a few pounds, I don't know exactly how much, but it's, you know, I've seen, prices from sort of 100 pounds to 500 pounds um and get myself a drip i can yeah. sit there have my drip and probably i would feel amazing because you know you're putting in saline um which is increasing your blood volume um and you know short term that might um help our cardiovascular system you know to operate and, and it will feel, will just feel more um sort of invigorated by it but it's just a short-term fix there's no long-term beneficial effect of that in fact we're putting more stress on our body by having the body having to deal with some of these nutrients in in excess mm. so we've gone off a bit of a tangent there but i think um so the point is that footballers if they, if they choose to can um can go and get these products very easily now i think it's more prevalent in the us possibly than it is in in the uk um but I don't. We don't know for certain uh, the prevalence around around Europe, for example, in, in among football players. But what I would say is just you know we want players to, if they're directly marketed these products, I think they're probably vulnerable to that kind of marketing. Um, then you know try to be 
better informed, try to avoid um, going down that route, and instead, you know, talk to qualified nutritionists about how to get the, uh, or you know, look for information online about how to get nutrition directly from food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as yourself and many of our listeners will know, there are anti-doping rules on IV infusions and injections. Specifically, the World Anti-Doping Agency's 2022 prohibited list states that the the prohibition of, and I'm quoting, intravenous infusions and or injections of more than a total of 100 mils per 12-hour period, except for those legitimately received in the course of hospital treatments, surgical procedures, or clinical diagnostic investigations. So... With both the risks to health and potential of violating anti-doping rules in mind, why might footballers still use IV nutrition? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. I think the motivation for it is um, is a quick fix, um, and a, and I mean they might be um, they might do it once and then decide it. You know, it's something that's helping them. There's strong. There might be a strong placebo effect here at play as well. Um, but I think uh, you know you mentioned there the risk of um, violating anti-doping rules, mm. um, and that's a really um, really significant risk. Um, of course, anti-doping um, rules are like the governing bodies generally are signed up to the WADA code, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are um, that the, the federations are accepting that, implementing it, and then. Um, enforcing it and so you know we know that our Olympic athletes get tested really regularly particularly around major championships it might not be the case in some of these um, pro sports and uh, again in the US we know there's cases where very light uh, testing processes are in place and very light bands when somebody is has has um, has been um, uh, caught uh, with a, an illegal substance so so there's that element too that, um, but I think there's there's a very real risk of um, an anti-doping violation, partly because of the risk of contamination of these products too. So, mm-hmm. um, as is the case, like you know, any nutritionist will will tell you who works in in sport that you need to check your nutritional products uh, that they are batch tested for contamination for banned products um, that they are. Um, that they carry a, a badge like the Informed Sport badge, that, so you know it's a, te- a tested and a cleared product. Mm. Now these 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 IV products um, don't have that, and they are you know not regulated in the same way. So and, and there's certainly more than 100 mils going in. So there's a risk here of even though the majority of that is saline, which is basically salty water, um, there is a risk that you could violate. Um, a uh, anti-doping rules, mm-hmm. so that uh, I think is a is, is a that should be probably the strongest <laughs> of um, of advice, you know, is it, and reasons to, to avoid it. Now we mustn't get confused here between IV nutrition products and a medical use um, uh, intramuscular or intravenous product that a doctor might administer on the back of a deficiency. Now that's that is, you know, what we, that would carry what's called a therapeutic use exemption, where athletes are able to um, to uh, take those or you know um, receive those infusions under the guidance of a of a physician. Um, now, p- 
part again part of the reason for writing this um, editorial was that, and there's other clinicians as authors there is that often the doctors are in a tricky position because players are coming to them saying can you give me one of these things because it made me feel good last time or helped me last time um, and they don't necessarily want to say no to these players because they you know they don't want to fall out with them they're part of the team so there's that tricky position so we wanted to have this document that sets out some of the risks sets out the uh, the, the theory behind it um, and a better understanding and some guidance so um, so that's part of the reason again for for, for writing this editorial mm -hmm. yeah in your opinion what can be done to address this issue well I think you know what you're doing here is really important and spreading the spreading the word and and, and communicating it via whichever um, routes we can um, and making sure people are really well informed if you look at I think this the science community as well can do a better job of um, being aware of this and if you look at recent consensus statements that have been published um, even for football and for other sports it's really ignored um, so we, there's there's talk about how you know food first is you know we, we that's really uh, widely accepted you know try to get mm -hmm. as much of your nutrition as you can from from eating regular foods meat potatoes pasta what you know rice whatever you need um, but the the the, the, on top of that, then there might be a need for supplementation in certain scenarios, particularly for athletes who are trying to, um, you know, perform at a high level and have a, a high degree of physical stress on them. Um, and certain things like vitamin D might be also dependent on uh, how much sunlight's being. Um, so geographically, you might have a greater need for vitamin D in the winter than you would in the in the summer. So, so there's you know there's lots of discussion around food and supplements, and rightly so. But the IV nutrition piece has been completely ignored, and I think so. Um, greater awareness, um, talking about it like we are now, and getting that information to the athletes and their su support teams, um, I think will help to um, just steer athletes away from the risks of, of IV nutrition. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, that's great. Thank you, Charlie. So I'm going to draw that to a close. Um, I found that you know really interesting, and I agree. You know, it's really important to raise awareness. Um, so thank you very much. We'll make sure to include a link to the relevant editorial that was mentioned at the beginning when we published this podcast. So thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. So listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the FMPA podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Alternatively, please check out the podcast section of the FMPA website. Thank you for listening to the Football Medicine and Performance podcast. Have a great day. Thank you.